Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. This is Alpha Chat. It's a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. We were in Atlanta for the meeting of the American Economic Association this weekend. We found Robert Schiller. We dragged him over to the podcast table. There are a lot of reasons for you to know who Robert Schiller is. He won the Nobel Prize in 2013. And yes, I know the prize for economics is not an actual Nobel Prize. Don't at me on this one. Robert Schiller won the prize for showing that stock prices move more than corporate dividends. That is, stocks are not necessarily worth what companies pay you to hold them. Stock markets are not completely efficient. More recently, Robert Schiller has been thinking and writing about narrative. Two years ago, at this conference, he gave a speech. He argued that markets are beholden to stories that don't necessarily have any basis in data. Narratives. Economists look down on narratives as silly. But Schiller said that if you want to understand markets, you have to understand stories, how they start and how they spread. I think that in the future we'll have more of a science to understand these things than we do now because the economics profession is not in the habit of looking at narratives. I asked him about the last two months in stock markets and about the narrative that was driving those declines. The uh, talk has been for uh, most of a decade, when will the Fed raise interest rates again? They started raising interest rates in 2015. They've been talking about it for years. Suddenly, the markets uh, are reacting as if there's a crisis of interest rate increases. This doesn't look rational, but what it does look to me and to many others is as the result of some new talk. It's talk that it's finally come, that the interest rates are finally having an effect. But why are they finally having an effect? It's because of the talk. So it's kind of circular. It's a feedback. It's... uh, the result of people reacting to other people's talk, and not particularly Jerome Powell's talk, which is so mild and uh, unexciting. uh, He's doing that as Fed chairman so as not to roil the markets. He's staying on a path which was announced before, and yet now it seems like news. This is because of the contagion of narrative. They're, They're contagious now as part of a feedback from the stock market, initial stock market declines, and they continue to build as an epidemic. Just to make sure I understand it correctly, you famously put together this historical time series of equity valuations. And so we can look at it and we can sort of see that um, it's historically, stock markets in the United States are historically overvalued still. But when you look at the declines of the last two months, you don't necessarily see something based on any kind of data, manufacturing data, anything internal to the stock market. You actually see something based on a, I'm sure you'll have a better word for this, but a mass psychosis. I tend to avoid using the term psychosis, which seems kind of a strong language. The same thing happened in 1929, famously. The stock market rose 30% in the five months before the peak of the market in 29. And then it crashed for no apparent reason. The earnings were high, the economy was uh, moving well, but suddenly it crashed. And again, it was talk. 
I think. There was a, uh, a new narrative that developed in 1929, just as there is a new narrative developing today. You know, sometimes I look at that chart that we can get off of your website that just looks at historical CAPE data, price to equity ratio, and I think, well, it's got to happen sometime, so why not now? Is, is yeah. that a narrative? Yes, it is. An, uh, there is a narrative that stock market movements repeatedly go between booms, corrections, and bear markets. And so, but then the question is, is this it? Back in January, February of 2018, there was a 10% drop in the stock markets. Mm -hmm. And people were wondering back then, is this it? Uh, ultimately, they decided it was not it. <laughs> uh, and the markets uh, stabilized. How did they reach that decision? What, why did it stop? And why has it resumed recently? Uh, I don't have an exact science for this, but I think it has something to do with the, the whole array of stories that are current at that time. And it's a noisy feedback. Uh, it's not logical or rational. There, are, there were some leading figures who raised the issue that maybe this is it. This is going to be a, a, a serious uh, bear market. And they, they sounded particularly um, convincing at the time. It may also have something to do with politics that's getting edgy, more evidence of polarization. The emotions associated with that may be more conducive to thinking that this would be a time of a uh, bear market. And we can see that in other economic sentiment data, that there is a spread between the way Republicans feel and the way Democrats feel about markets that can't be justified by anything other than politics. E yeah, economists have to take account of politics, that those are the major things that drive the market. Well, of course, Donald Trump promised to cut corporate taxes, yeah. and he did. Yeah. Uh, and so that puts an upward impetus on the market. So you have to judge the politics of the situation. Now, it doesn't seem like it's especially clear where we're heading in U.S. politics at the moment. Uh, and that has something, again, to do with the market. But there was an overall shift in sentiment looking at the, the Michigan consumer surveys. And the shift in sentiment was overall down, but it was, almost com it was entirely compiled of downward movements uh, from Republicans after the loss of the House in November. That to me is fascinating, is that this, this shift in sentiment is actually just about Republicans feeling bad. I don't want to minimize Republicans feeling bad, but it's, very, it's a very sharply polarized measure. Well, this relates to a very basic fact that we, we all have different narratives, and the markets depend on the aggregate of all these narratives. I think that in the future, we'll have more of a science to understand these things than we do now because the economics profession is not in the habit of looking at narratives. But afterwards, when, when we become more data-oriented, we, we have a lot of data that relates to evidence about narratives. As this develops further, I think we'll have better ideas. So more broadly, not just talking about this moment in markets, um, what do we know about how a narrative starts, and what do we know about how it spreads? Well, I would say that uh, narratives are like diseases. Uh, influenza epidemics come, they don't know, they can't forecast them, at, so how severe will it, they know it's seasonal, uh, but they don't know how severe the next one will be. In, in disease epidemics, it starts with typically a mutation uh, that makes, uh, suddenly makes a new strain of the virus uh, 
very contagious. Or it can also start from some change in uh, the environment. Uh, like rainy weather might keep us in together more, so we spread the disease faster. Things like that. But the explanation of an influenza epidemic always relates to something that we don't even see or think about. And I think it's the same with economic epidemics. I can't name the reason why uh, the volatility of the market has shot back up again. It's something that diverted our attention. It may not be very quotable or very distinct, but it has created an epic attention toward the stock market. And I might also say the housing market has shown big changes in the recent months. Uh, the uh, futures market at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for home prices is showing a, a sharp decline in expectations for future prices. And all the indicators in the housing market in the United States are weakening now. All of a sudden, and for no apparent reason, I mean, you could say the reason is that housing starts are down, but that's, that's not an exogenous cause. That's, that's a result of some change in thinking. Is this narrative based on the Federal Reserve's series of decisions yeah. to continue raising rates this year? That is one of a whole constellation of narratives that is impactful at the moment. I think that the other things that are operating now are worries about the trade war, uh, worries about uh, the thought that we're overdue for a, a crisis, uh, and judgments of other people's uh, confidence that uh, you derive from a lot of stories and observations of people. So this is an inherently unstable system. The longer an expansion goes on, are we more susceptible to infection by narrative? As, as a bull market continues, we keep thinking, we keep having these conversations uh, amongst ourselves about how this can't go on forever. And once you're primed to think this can't go on forever, is right. that the moment at which your immune system is down? I think that that sounds like a good a good story. I don't have any exact <laughs> science on that because you know uh, it can go either way. That's the problem. When you when you think the market is going up crazily, mm -hmm. you might react different ways to it. Some people will react by selling, and some will react by buying. It, it's it's on numbers of people. How many people are in one category versus the other? So it's like a tug of war. If you're watching people, you know what I mean, where you have a long rope and you have two teams pulling in opposite course, directions yes. on the rope. How do you know which way it's going to go? Maybe one thing is to count how many people are on each side. <laughs> uh, and also look at how spirited they are. <laughs> it's that kind of judgment which is inherently uh, difficult to make without, uh, even with a lot of data, it's difficult to predict where it's going. I think that we're in a dangerous time in the stock markets now mm -hmm. because uh, so many people have had their confidence shaken. They may think of it as a buying opportunity and, mm -hmm. and be willing to outweigh the selling uh, incentives that many people have, but uh, it's not clear who's going to win this tug of war. Let me try out a narrative on you. Um, one avenue of infection, if we're going to continue this metaphor, might have come from financial markets commentators. There are certain companies and people in financial markets that have a lot more at stake right now than those of us who 
you know, own houses and, and live on a salary. We know that corporations over the last five years, um, non-financial corporations have borrowed a ton of money, which puts them in a more delicate position as they watch stock markets. That's one. Um, we know that uh, there are more leveraged loans, which is basically the same story, right? That, they're, that they've really taken out a lot of debt, which means they're just really swinging on the price of stock of their company. I watched a, a clip again and again and again because I was fascinated by it of Jim Cramer on CNBC talking about exactly this. And the narrative was the Fed doesn't get it. I get it because I'm making the phone calls to people in markets who are terrified right now. This was in about October, I think. And the narrative was the people he must have been calling in markets must have been these people who have so much riding on the equity markets, right? Who are so leveraged that the price of their, the stock price of their company makes a massive difference uh, um, in a way that it wouldn't for me. But that narrative, I'm calling people, they know stuff, the Fed doesn't get it, I get it, they can't raise. That's an incredibly powerful narrative with the potential to infect all of us and not just people who have a stake in highly leveraged corporations. I think that's a little overstated that the Fed doesn't get it. There <laughs> oh, I, I are serious would agree. people on the Fed. And the move that they've made up is not that dramatic because at the current rate of inflation, the real interest rate on federal funds is not just a little bit above zero. And, they, and it's been almost 10 years since the bottom of the market. Uh, so isn't it time to go back to a normal market? So I don't think these people are crazy and just don't get it. But you may be right that it's a narrative. No, that's, so I agree. I don't think the Fed is crazy and doesn't get it either. I, I, that's why I kept on watching that clip is it was fascinating the way he was portraying the Fed. I mean, they're, right. they're, I mean of, of all the groups of people who are trying to look at problems rationally and come up with rational answers, the, the, the Federal Reserve System is pretty high on my list. So I, I don't agree with him. But I do think that he provided a powerful narrative if you're inclined to believe him. So Jim Cramer... Uh, has two personalities. When I've met him uh, individually, perfectly r- rational, reasonable guy. <laughs> but he, he is now the star in a show called Mad Money. And he is deliberately putting on a show. I mean, I yeah. think he would admit it if pressed. Yeah. It's a show uh, that uh, he may be crazy, but he is insightful. And, and so he, he's very successful because of the contagion of, of the Mad Money narrative. Well... It, it is not traditionally the job of an economist to create narratives. It's the job of an economist to understand the world as, as best right. as he or she can. And in fact, I have a job, thankfully, because it's my job to create narratives based on all that data. If there are narratives out there and they affect markets uh, in ways that aren't completely based on any kind of rational appraisal uh, of actual data, do economists need to learn how to not just write papers but write narratives to combat the other narratives that are out there? Some economists have to do that. Uh, it's a difficult, uh, there's, there's no science to doing that, however. I, uh, some economists become speech writers for politicians. Uh, that's when you have the opportunity, uh, perhaps, to experiment with, it, it's, it's just not an exact science. And to know what to do. You go back to the 1920s, which I was talking about, uh, Calvin Coolidge was president then, and he kept trying to talk up capitalism in the market. He was trying to create a narrative, and he was a success for moderate success for a while. Uh, and then it suddenly turns on him, and the narrative is that he's at fault for having created a crisis. And Herbert Hoover, uh, during the early 1930s, 
when the depression was underway, kept saying it will be over soon, thinking that that would create confidence. And he was supposed to be a smart president who would do stimulus policy to overcome the depression. But it didn't work. The, the, the problem is na narrative writing is like creative writing. I disagree. As somebody who, who does narrative writing but not creative writing, I think you're right. It's not an exact science. Um, but it is a trade that you can learn. Right. And, right. I, and I think but you're competing against a lot of other people sure. in that trade. But I think that uh, uh, think tanks, for example, seem to have taken this on and looked at it as a trade that you can learn. And when I compare the product of a think tank to the product of a peer-reviewed academic paper, the think tank paper does some basic things like it puts its charts in line. Um, it writes... Uh, in, in sort of plain, accessible English. Um, and often there are things that are coming out of think tanks. I don't want to paint them all with the same brush, but you know, often you, I, I always have to take what they say with a grain of salt because I know why it is that they're doing it. But they certainly do seem to take the trade, not the science, but the, the basic tradecraft of narrative very seriously because it is their job. They're getting paid to create narratives. So is it incumbent on economists to learn some of that craft so that right. they can create their own narratives. Well, I don't know about economy. I think there has to be a, a role for integrity. And <laughs> the, the problem is that life in a competitive market, whether it's uh, selling motion pictures or selling the news, uh, gives you incentives to exaggerate and distort the, the truth. Uh, News media have to uh, attract readers. You you have the temp it's like a temptation to uh, 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 allow me as a member of the news <laughs> media to say that that is not necessarily oh, a bad thing, but I, I will take reader? your point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, readers, please be attracted. Continue. So I I think that you are right that there is a, prof uh, a, a journalism profession. We have schools of journalism and degrees. It is a it is a uh, something that's developed over centuries. Uh, as the news media emerged, uh, the first newspapers were in the 1600s. Uh, they didn't initially know all the things that journalists today know about how to create an a, a article that goes viral. Uh, one of the tricks that news media people use is to read each other and read newspapers in other countries or news uh, broadcasts in other countries uh, because they, ha they might have an idea that is contagious, and you want, to you want to use that idea. Speaking of contagion, should economists be on Twitter, or is there more danger there than reward? Well, I'm on Twitter, although I'm very cautious about what I say, so I'm not, uh, I'm not playing the game of trying to go viral on Twitter. Um, I think that the, uh, the professions have an, uh, a duty to maintain their uh, independence from current narratives and speak the truth and I take that as something that can be done on Twitter it's a question of how you how you uh, how you choose your words let me let me leave you with one last question um, five or six years ago and I've never forgotten this uh, I, I was writing a profile of Tyler Cowen the economist and he said what is a model is a novel a model and he left the question hanging there, and I don't have a good answer, but sometimes I suspect that novels are just as good, if not better, at right. creating narratives, at, at, at helping people understand very simple mechanisms um, uh, 
uh, to understand how the world works. Um, I, I think there are models. That, right. I think there are novels that have been every bit as influential in how we see the world and how we think about economics right. as, as models. One particular genre of novel is the historical novel. The question, it's an interesting question, which should you read? Uh, should you read a historian or should you read a historical novel? Then the historical novel will in invent dialogue. Now you know it's invented, but if, if it's a good novelist, that novelist will try to f capture the true essence of a time in, in the dialogue that is created. Uh, ultimately, our judgments are very uh, focused by dialogue. And even in a fictional dialogue, maybe a more effective way of writing history. I think the movie The Big Short, which features your friend Richard Thaler, <laughs> did exactly that. It invented dialogue, was honest about the invented dialogue, but I think is probably more definitional in terms of how America understands what happened in the crisis than possibly any other work that's done because it's such a compelling piece of narrative. Some novels have been historically important. Uh, I'm thinking of Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, about abuse of a slave named Uncle Tom. Uh, evidence is that that novel had such emotional impact that, uh, and why I did it, it was just very well written and it had a uh, impact on people's feelings that ultimately, you might argue, led to the American Civil War and the abolition of slavery. People uh, debate over whether the Civil War was really a war over slavery. How can we resolve that debate? Well, one, one uh, suggestion I have for anyone who wonders about that, read Uncle Tom's Cabin, and you, you will know it will generate, even today, more than 100 years later, it will generate emotions in you that you could see, you can feel how they could lead to war. Robert Schiller, thank you. My pleasure. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on Alphaville with links to Robert Schiller's speech and papers on market narratives. But as always, this is a reboot, and we genuinely want to hear from you. We want to know who you are, how you listen, when you listen, and what you want to hear. We practice inbox zero at alphachat at ft.com. For my part, I promise to watch more Jim Cramer. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.